Welcome to the Aporia podcast. Remember, you can listen to this podcast on all the major platforms. If you like the show, you love the Aporia magazine. Find the link in the show notes along with our Twitter and a link to the bonus questions we ask our guests. How many people have political agency? It depends how you define political agency. It seems like almost everyone who goes and votes, that's about 45% of the population. They vote their genetics for the most part. Um, but only maybe the top five or 10% of people have the intellectual capacity to have something resembling a philosophical ideology. Uh, below about 120 IQ, you just have a bunch of impulses, a bunch of sound bites that you pick up off the media, stuff like that. You're not really reading books or systematizing your political views into something coherent, like a lot of people would assume. So let's go back a step. What does it actually mean to have political agency? What would a free, uh, autonomous individual look like? Well, I break political agency right now down into three parts. So um, it's recognition of things that could be better. So you have to have the ability to look at the current legal political landscape and to imagine a counterfactual where there are different policies. And you have to be able to understand uh, what sort of downstream effects these different policies would have in order to be able to um, organically come up with your own new policy ideas. So if you can't come up with your own new policy ideas, then you have to let other people do your thinking for you in large part. So you can display lower order recognition. Meaning if you hear somebody else come up with an awesome policy idea like abolishing high school, you might nod your head in agreement, but they have to do the thinking for you. You can't come up with that on your own. So the person who can come up with that on their own obviously has a higher level of recognition, which is a component of political agency than somebody who can't. And it seems like you need to be over about 120 IQ to be able to come up with that from just from preliminary research. Um, there's also advocation. So the, the first component of my concept of political agency is recognition. The second component is advocating. And advocating just means how much you care about politics. It doesn't seem like that it correlates with IQ. Intuitively, I, I've run a few studies on this just off of prolific, and there doesn't seem to be a correlation with IQ. There's, there does seem to be a small correlation between how I've tried to measure uh, the recognition component and, and general intelligence. But for advocation, you measure it just by how much people pay attention to politics, how much they protest, how much they vote. And intuitively, that doesn't really take much intelligence. So mm -hmm. uh, there, there's not really an IQ component in advocation, but people still vary in advocation like a, based on personality traits and stuff like that. Again, only about 45% of people vote. So a lot of people just don't care or pay attention to politics. Um, even if they hear something, even if they agree that uh, if you got rid of high schools, for instance, that their life would get better, they might not advocate for it. They won't post about it online. They won't talk about it in the real world. Uh, they certainly might not put any money on the line to achieve such a policy goal. So some people will do all those things and other people will do some of those things. And a lot of people will do none of those things. And this just comes down to temperament. People vary in their temperament. And this creates differences in advocation capacity. So some people um, are advocates, but don't have the highest order recognition abilities. Some people have recognition abilities, but not, not might not want to be advocates. Uh, you see a lot of smart people that don't pay attention to 
politics at all. So in theory, they could recognize new interesting policies that nobody has thought of before. They could have high order recognition capacities. But if they never think about politics and they don't care about policy at all, they never really think outside the box. They just focus on math theorems and stuff like that. You know, go to the mm-hmm. MIT math department and try to find a bunch of people that are interested in, in policy and thinking up new policies. They're certainly smart enough to do so, but in effect, they never do because mm-hmm. they, they're not advocates. They don't really have the advocation temperament. So, so those are the two, those are the first two components of political agency under my model. And the final component is uh, implementation capacity, which essentially comes down to, um, it, it's, it's going to correlate with genetics and latent traits, but it comes down to having the personal power and status needed to be able to actually implement new policies. So advocation is like supporting a policy online or protesting in, in favor of a policy, but implementation is actually building the policy. When you pass a law, somebody writes the law. Uh, usually a think tank writes the law. People you've never heard of, politicians don't actually write the law. They just pass the law. So people who are employed by politicians and advocates often actually write the bills that are going into law. And these are complicated texts um, that are dozens, if not hundreds of pages written in strange legalese. So this is obviously G-loaded. Not everyone can write these. Uh, It's also skilled. So even if you have high intelligence, you have to learn how to write these. Um, It also takes time and you have to have the appropriate resources. So you have to be in the right position to write these. Even if you learn how to write these and you're smart enough to be able to learn how to write these, you might not have a think tank position. You might not have the money to be able to uh, spend the time to write these. You might not have the social status to be able to write a bill and have it be taken seriously, even if it's a good idea. So you have to have implementers come in and the, the whole, so So, and most people are not implementers. So basically the idea is that for any policy, for any new policy, somebody has to recognize it. You have to have a state where that policy doesn't exist and somebody recognizes that it would be a good idea for the first time. Then they spread it through advocation to lower order recognizers who recognize that um, they didn't think of the policy themselves, but they recognize that it sounds like a good idea. Um, and then lower order recognizers will in turn advocate for it. And only some some people will advocate at, at every step. Some people who the policy would be good for will fail to recognize that it will be good for them because they don't have the ability to. So they will uh, say silly arguments in response or they will ignore politics as a whole. Um, some people will recognize that the policy would be good for them, but they won't advocate for it because they don't like investments like the, the act of the act of passing a new policy is an investment in a collective good. And some people are very uh, high time preference, even if they're smart and they are very self-focused. So they don't want to invest their time and money potentially in just passing some policy. They prefer to focus on their personal life. And it's very easy to find people like this. I would say a majority of people are like this. Again, 55% of people don't show up to vote in us presidential elections. And most people uh, about 95, 90 to 95% of people never go uh, and attend any sort of in real life political rally or protest um, because those those are risky and costly and take time. And so somewhere in between 50 and 90% of people are just very self-focused, like, oh, I wouldn't want to, 
actually invest anything into the political process because I might not get my money back and that would be better spent on a Netflix subscription right now because it would be too long-term of an investment. And then after you get all the recognizers and the advocates, you finally have to get an implementer. You have to get politicians to agree with it and you have to get um, people who are capable of writing bills to write up the bill and to implement it correctly, um, to implement all the details. At the recognition and advocacy stage, it's more of an idea, like, hey, let's get rid of high school. But the actual bill is going to have to be more specific, right? It's it's mm-hmm. act, like, actually, uh, which funds are you getting rid of? Like, which years? Uh, what's happening to all the teachers, just to use an example, whatever. Or like with the Civil Rights Act, uh, it, the the recognition was, hey, let's give uh, black people more rights and in segregation. And then the avocation is the, uh, the, the, the protests or what the mostly peaceful protests of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and all that. And then the, the implementation is the actual text of the civil rights act, which is complicated and had a bunch of Richard Hanania talks about this. It has a bunch of other stuff in it, stuff that people maybe weren't expecting. And so every step of the way, basically in the political process, um, you have less and less people who are capable of being actively involved. And it's so it's important to understand what kinds of people you need to appeal to and policies. So you might have a policy where maybe a majority of people could support it in theory. But if you don't appeal to advocates and recognizers and implementers, which are going to tend to be um, politically involved people who are higher IQ, it might not get off the ground. So you're going to have some sort of intrinsic elite theory where uh, you have to appeal to like policies that just appeal to the bottom 51% of the population won't be as successful as a pure democracy model would predict, in other words, because of this political agency process. Okay, so the traditional, let's call it left-wing critique of this view is something like, People are far too busy, uh, to, you know, to make decisions, and you know, there's there's surely an element of truth to this because, um, you know, the the left um, will say that change always comes from below, and w- when you give people a cause and the uh, time to organize, right, this is obviously the kind of like the anarchist or Marxist view of the world. They will often do so. Um, what do you make of this? This First of all, is this a critique? Or w- I guess we would even find that the people who are doing that organizing are obviously going to be a higher IQ, um, have higher political agency as you've operationalized it um, anyway. But does this pose any problem to your political agency worldview? No, because when you examine the communist revolutions, they're not uh, spontaneous, disorganized, and wholly bottom-up. You have a small group of leaders that are higher IQ, Stalin and Lenin and Castro. These people are almost certainly over 115, 120 IQ. Um, They're these theoretician visionaries that are often uh, like actually creating the specific policies that need to be implemented. They're uh, leading the implementation. They're actually leading the, uh, you know, armed the, the armed militias of the new revolutionary society and commanding them um, specifically on what to do on how to implement communism. Um, they are 
the 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 armed militias are less than five percent of the population, and this is the advocate class. So in wars and revolutions, um, it's a fact that is obscured from people who uh, see history as very decentralized. That wars and revolutions are always less than like five percent of people um, mm-hmm. in any society. And for one example, if you look at Afghanistan and the Taliban. There's about 30,000 members of the Taliban, if I recall correctly, and there's something like um, 3 million. There's there's a few million people in Afghanistan. Hold on. Population of Afghanistan. But what, what pops out is that the Taliban is only about 1% of Afghanistan. Okay, there's 40 million people in Afghanistan. So that comes out to... Uh, Let's see, 30, 30 over 40,000 are in the Taliban. So it's less than 1%. And the Taliban completely rules mm-hmm. that society. So you have that society at war and it shifts from feminist and American and all this. And they have gender studies departments in Kabul. And then the Taliban wins. And this is less than a percent of the population of Afghanistan. Everyone else is just farming. Everyone else is just living in the hills, not engaged in combat. And the Taliban comes in and completely changes everything. And they have to perform the implementation. They have to interpret uh, the Islamic fundamentalism in the Quran or whatever and, and determine exactly how to dismantle the gender studies departments and stuff like that. So it's clearly a very centralized process. Every revolution is like that. The American Revolution, uh, less than... of the population is involved fighting in the war. It's not a total war. Uh, The world wars were very odd, actually, uh, in in their scale. Every war except for the world wars was less than 1% of the population in whatever area being involved. You have relatively small militias on either side fighting for dominance, and then they control everything afterwards. The world wars were one of the only times in history where where, uh, the governments were trying to implement totalitarianism and enlist every man to go out and fight stuff like that. So, so uh, just to be clear, um, you obviously you do say in, in that post on political agency, that agency is a, is, is a spectrum and we're kind of we're here, we're talking about something closer to this, you know, ubermensch individual, right? So you wouldn't deny, for example, that, um, you know, some working class uh, manual laborers who, unionize in order to get better pay are exhibiting a form of political agency. It's just not the kind that's ever going to allow them to exert significant control over society. Is that fair? Yeah, they're exhibiting some political agency, but even in a union, the union leaders are often higher IQ. There's several analyses of this. Right. Um, You know, they tend to be over one SD, um, even over 120 IQ. And so they're the people who are really planning out what the union does. And the way they get the lower order uh, members to join is often, it's through usually selfish economics. There's a wonderful, I call this the union question because it is weird from an elitist point of view, how do unions form? There's a wonderful analysis in a book called The Logic of Collective Action that talks about unions from a selfish economics point of view. So it, it's not exactly sociobiological, but essentially it, it models people as it models most union members as extremely selfish and short-sighted, which is the essence of political agency. Most people are selfish and, and short-sighted and not very good at understanding like abstract policy. 
stuff like that. And, and a few people are mm-hmm. um, thinking about the long term and are more altruistic and thinking about collective goods. So how do you start a union and get a lot of people to join in a population that's overwhelmingly like homo economicus? Um, you have to give them incentives to join. And so actually how unions arose is they were social clubs at first where the people would just have fun. The, the workers would just have fun socializing with each other, like at taverns, stuff like that. And then a few high advocacy leaders would try on small scales to mobilize um, these social organizations and fraternities into unions that demanded better wages and stuff like that, that could organize strikes. So it was popular worker leaders, essentially, that had vision mm-hmm. and implementation capacity and ad- advocacy, stuff like that, and that could recognize the idea of the union before there were ever unions. Um, that led the led the charge, and just through through their social skills and their popularity, they got unions to work on a small scale. And w- once unions worked, like just within one company on a small scale, like a company that employs maybe a few hundred workers at most, a small factory, then they spread because once one was successful, they could uh, set up base and expand. So these small unions that would start at one company would actually expand to other companies, and what they would do is they would just pay workers to join. Right now, workers join established mm-hmm. unions because it's a good economic deal to join. You just get a higher wage, you get mm-hmm. insurance, stuff like that. And sometimes you can't get a job, in, in, at least historically. Now unions are on the decline, but historically you couldn't get a job in an industry without joining the union. They got to that point through mm-hmm. basically this uh, iterative like algorithm of appealing to selfish, short-sighted, uh, intuitions of of the average person, starting from a very small basis. They didn't they didn't just start large, uh, able to pay people to join. But but once they reached a certain size, they were they they had this inertia and, and they mostly worked because it was economically it was selfishly short sightedly economically rational for a worker to join the union. Right. It was never like most like what I'm saying is most union members were never high agency or high political altruism or anything like that. They were never thinking about the general future, the general condition of the worker or whatever. They weren't theory reading communists. They were just there for a social time, for insurance and for and later on after um, the first small unions were successful for higher wages. So any any new political. I think that's a good lesson for any new political organization to learn from. Uh, if you want to grow big, you have to appeal to, like I said, very uh, people who are very homo economicus, people who are very short-sighted and rationally selfish, who basically want to mm-hmm. just be there for utils. They're not actually into the cause. You have to appeal to uh, their basic sense of utils. You have to provide them with like money and a good time and stuff like that and hope that you can provide them with enough of that that they will be willing to give you a little bit of political action in return when you ask for it yeah so one thing i wanted to uh, raise with you is i don't know whether you've heard of the uh, historian jonathan rose and his magnum opus the intellectual life of the british working classes i interviewed him maybe about 18 months ago on this podcast before it was a borea and uh, he's often quoted, this is a big book, you know, it's well over a thousand pages, I think, or maybe maybe just under with references. Um, and he's often quoted by Chomsky, um, 
that his main focus is obviously in this book on the British working classes, and it and and this um, analysis is certainly applicable to um, as Chomsky talks about, like um, the factory girls in in Boston at the turn of the century. Anyway, Rose shows with extensive uh, documentation from library records um, that the British working classes were very well read, um, you know, and they they would read the classics. Uh, factory workers would often pay a, a you know a young boy to read to them. Um, obviously, it depends on the factory. Sometimes it was too loud, but if you were like um, you know uh, a shoe shiner or a mechanic, this was very common practice. And again, we're not saying that everybody read Shakespeare, but you know Milton, Shakespeare, basically the classics. You know, people were very very uh, well read compared to um, let's call it the um, post tabloid world where things start to become diluted down. Um, are you familiar with with this? Um, I don't want to call it revisionist history. I mean, it, it, it is is essentially revisionist. But are you f- are familiar with this view, and does it pose any type of um, challenge to the uh, elite theory model of society? No, I've heard of that book because I read Komsky. I read his Manufacturing Consent, and I'm familiar with the ideas of that sphere. Uh, I wish you had told me that you wanted to ask about that book beforehand because I I have a rebuttal to um, essentially the way that that's interpreted by the the leftists. Um, but I'm, I'm struggling mm-hmm. to remember exactly what was wrong with that book. But if I recall correctly, uh, it, not, um, it, it's, it's dubiously quantitative to begin with, but in essence, it's looking at like a top fraction of the workers. So it's looking at maybe mm-hmm. the top five or 10% of the workers, which is consistent with my theory. And they're going to have higher IQs. And these are the ones who are doing all this reading. And it was still something like 90, 90 plus percent of the workers didn't want to do any reading, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it, it's it's misrepresentative to say that uh, the British working class in the 19th century had this rich intellectual life steeped in the classics. And they were reading Shakespeare, having Shakespeare read to them uh, while they were working with their hands in the factory or whatever. It's sort of. Just not not accurate. I guess the other hereditarian response here might be something like, um, "Well, th- this is you know the 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 derogatory insult word cell might come into play here, right?" So, um, pra- perhaps with you know practice effects, um, you and and the I don't know maybe someone like Jonathan Rose would say there was more of an emphasis, obviously, on reading. Um, you had the radio, but that was about it. So. That was that was the main form of entertainment, and so you would expect um, this to be, this to be more popular, right? And you don't need an IQ of uh, probably much more than one hundred and ten if you've been reading from a young age to appreciate Shakespeare, and that dramatically changes the calculation of how many people would um, be reading uh, the classics at that time. Yeah, but it doesn't necessarily mean, of course, that they have political agency. Yeah, to have like the top 10% of working class people have Shakespeare read to them as a form of entertainment in a world with no TV, no podcast, stuff like that. It's not really that remarkable because, mm-hmm. yeah, like like you said, yeah. it's like Shakespeare is not that G-loaded. That doesn't actually mean they're that high IQ. So and, and these days there's plenty of people, you know, in that sort of economic class that listen to podcasts about Plato and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're not interested in any math or any sort. They don't want to learn to code or anything. Like I've heard plenty of stories about people who work in a warehouse and are like, oh, I'm very uh, in- intellectually interested. I listen to podcasts about ancient philosophy. 
but then they don't learn to code or do any sort of intellectual skills that would pay more. And yeah, like, like you said, it's just because, you know, those podcasts or listening to a Shakespeare audiobook or whatever is not that G loaded and they would probably fail to learn uh, quantitative skills that could allow them to, you know, rise to just like the middle class or whatever. It's, there's pretty open. If you just mm-hmm. sit down and learn programming or finance or something, uh, for the most part, you can go get a programming or finance job. There's not this hardcore classism mm-hmm. in, in America, but yet plenty of people who work on a forklift uh, talk about listening to podcasts. So that, that just shows that it, those things are accessible to people who maybe actually don't have the intellectual yeah. uh, grounding needed to learn quantitative skills that would allow them to make more money or whatever, or not, not be a member of the, the warehouse working class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess we should probably both emphasize here that we're just doing the diagnostic stuff. We're not saying that this is good or bad. I mean, I'm saying fundamentally, fundamentally, it's a wonderful thing, of course, if more people can experience the beauty of literature and history. Um, and of course, I don't like the fact that entertainment nowadays is TikTok, you know, death scrolling. Um, but we're simply yeah. pointing out um, that just because m- m- perhaps many more people can enjoy Shakespeare than currently do, that doesn't mean that that's somehow like a litmus test or a demonstration that they can do even more, go, you know, go beyond that. Yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful thing within limits. It stops being wonderful when that's the rationale for spending $250 billion a year on high schools to force feed Shakespeare to people. Then it becomes abuse. It's not that it's not, it's not worth that much money. I, that's actually an, uh, how much I support. I think people who want to read Shakespeare should just do it on their own time. I don't want to censor Shakespeare or, mm-hmm. or lock it away and say, you have to have a license to read Shakespeare. You have to take an IQ test to prove <laughs> your 135 IQ to read Shakespeare. That's ridiculous. Um, people should have access to it online for free, but it shouldn't be force fed to people in high schools. We shouldn't be spending money to make people read it. And that's where you know a lot of liberals and just mainstream people say uh, it's enrichment for the soul it's so important for our democracy they have no evidence for this and then that's that's their that's their main argument to support this horrible education system we have well also surely it's the opposite i mean i just i think it's very very rare unless you have a particularly gifted child or perhaps you know a slightly above average child who's been raised by middle class literary um parents who can appreciate uh, the value of shakespeare it's very rare beyond those examples to in, I'm thinking with any um, academic field, unless it's maybe something like cooking, you know, hands-on or some type of mechanical work, like working you know, it, woodwork or something like that, where, yeah, like a normal working class kid can really appreciate it because at the end of the lesson, they've actually built something. They've got they've got something to demonstrate. But what <laughs> it's very odd to think, oh, yeah, if by, by force-feeding people, they're going to learn to appreciate it. There's this, this form of cultural enrichment. I, I feel like if you go into most classrooms, it's the exact opposite people are um you know tearing their hair kids are tearing their hair out um when they're because it's a kind of it is a form of abuse right to be like you've got to pass algebra when obviously most people have no interest and they have no interest because they don't have the ability to go beyond a certain uh, level and same with shakespeare it's like a very odd society that says yeah you're going to you know um I mean, obviously, it's very different today, probably compared to 30, 40 years ago, the, the type of pedagogy. But basically, today, it's we're 30 kids in a classroom, and we're going, we're going to take turns reading you know, a sentence or two each out loud of, you know, of Mice and Men or Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, I think, I think most kids would fucking hate that when the alternative is in their pocket. They have all of 
all of the world's knowledge and entertainment basically available to them. Like, obviously, it's no contest. Yeah. Well, it's a scientific fact that kids hate that. Uh, Brian Kaplan shows this in his book, The Case Against Education. He cites surveys showing mm. that people, the average person is significantly happier at work than in school. They hate school. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not it's not hard to see why because school is very demeaning. Uh, it's it's more degrading than a work environment usually, and um, the average person is not very good at school, and they're significantly better at whatever job they get. And it just sucks to not only have to ask to use the bathroom and to be reading a book yeah. that you don't like all day and making no money. Uh, it sucks to also make like C's and B's and stuff like that, and to not be a very good student for you know, the, the years and years and years you're in school when you could be doing a better job working and making mm-hmm. money and, and learning skills and becoming very skilled at something most people don't know how to do. Supporting yourself, yeah. perhaps supporting a, a family. Yeah, it's, 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 so, it's a very twisted society. So of course, this is quite new. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to quote uh, a wonderful paragraph in your political agency post, which kind of sums up our discussion here, and then perhaps we can move on. You say the vast, vast majority of people, 75 to 95% of white people, are too stupid to actually understand what they're talking about when they say race isn't real or genetics don't matter. These people can't read. They can't understand a linear regression. They are surely not coming up with these ideas themselves. Rather, they are repeating others. They do not have the capacity to seriously consider the divine right of kings and whether or not popular sovereignty trumps it. When they are told these things, they are going to understand them at about the level of a 145 IQ person at the age of 11 or 12. The same goes for all other views. The evidence indicates that the average person, intellectually speaking, is about as smart as I was at 12. This gives me, and should probably give you, a good intuitive model of what most people are like. At 12, you repeat the adults. 12-year-olds are obedient. When you are 12, if the food is good, then life is good. When you are 12, you throw a tantrum because you didn't get some material good you wanted. Likewise, basically all true spontaneous protests are economically motivated and boil down to proles wanting more stuff. So could you thread that paragraph into explaining what elite theory is perhaps what it was and your frustration of how the elite theorists have been um, essentially regurgitated today um yeah I, I would say that that paragraph is a good somewhat edgily written i would probably be less edgy in writing that today but it's, it's all scientifically accurate but i would say that's a good scientific distillation of old elite theory um elite theory was never really that quantitative it was always like 19th century, early 20th century books that were just filled with uh, half thought out ideas by like a couple of early sociologists, which I'm sure were good for their time. Mm-hmm. Uh, these people were like Mosca, Michels, Pareto, um, but honestly really did not advance the scientific understanding of society that much. And like mainstream elite theory as pushed by uh, academic agent or whoever is still pushing it. Maybe Curtis Yarvin was pushing it back in the day. It's it's just it's just verbal and it's this verbal vibe that it's this verbal vibe that is something like that, except without all the numbers, without any sort of specific understanding. So that paragraph is edgy, as edgy as it may sound. Um, if you check all the sources, it's pretty much true. I'd maybe walk back now the part about all protests being economically 
Well, I don't know. Being economically motivated, I would say that they're economically maybe too specific of a word, but they're materially motivated. People aren't rioting because of Locke and Rousseau, like some of these people, some of these <laughs> historical idealists say. Some people say, uh, "Yeah, the the French Revolution happened because everyone was reading Voltaire and they got really mad at the king." And they like decided intellectually that divine, divine right of kings was garbage. And so the king had to be overthrown. And this is why they rioted. No, they rioted over food. <laughs> they rioted over food and, <laughs> and stuff like that. They were they were starving and they were really poor at, at that time. And this is why there was so much mass discontent. And it, it's like that with basically every other riot. Um, you know, black people don't do the race riots because they read Marcuse and they decided that brown bodies of color are, are being oppressed and erased and their culture is being appropriated. They riot because they see like at best, it's because they see a black guy getting kneeled on by a cop on TV. Right. It's much it's much simpler. Mm -hmm. And they're mad. Um, and it, even more than that, they riot. They tend, if you notice, they tend to riot during economic downturns. They riot in 2020 when they're told to stay inside and wear a mask. They riot uh, after the Great Recession during the the what the the Ferguson riots. This was like during or after the Great Recession when the economy is terrible. Um, there were the the riots in the 90s. I think the economy was bad then. So if you notice it, it correlates with, with bad economies. So they get, they get primed to riot when they see a black guy getting killed on TV, when the economy is also mm -hmm. really bad. It's not because they're reading philosophers like James Lindsay would have you believe. And then all the stuff about IQ, that's true. If you just look at IQ development, um, there, there are huge amounts of variation in IQ. You can see Churchill has a quote um, where he says the best argument against democracy is a conversation with the average voter for five <laughs> minutes. And it's so true. You can do this on Twitter every day. Um, right wing Twitter, like my Twitter account is sort of the sealed away space where my average follower probably has at least a one SDIQ. But if you go stumble on to normie Twitter and post any of that stuff. Uh, you will get brain dead responses. It's clear they're not even understanding what they're talking about. I mean, it's just, I'm sorry. The emperor has no clothes. Okay. And then when you look at the IQ charts, you see uh, you can model it as linear development until the age of 15. And basically, a 12 year old has approximately uh, 15 points IQ under what he would have as an adult. So the average person, the average white person, has and would score about an 85 on an adult IQ test at the age of 12. So that's about as well as the average adult black person does <laughs> for, for reference. That's how big the black white IQ gap is, but you can extend that to within race, within race gaps. So if you have an IQ of 120, you would have probably scored about a 100 or a 105 on the Y's at the age of 12, um, mm -hmm. which is, above 50 or more percent of the white adult population and so on. If you have an IQ of 130, you probably would have scored above 85% of the adult population on an IQ test when you're 12. And you remember what mm -hmm. being 12 is like. You had less brain capacity then. You should remember the qualia from, from the age of 12. So that's what I was referring to in, the, in that paragraph. You're sort of, you have a more parochial view of things. And it's a real red pill that uh, within the uh, IQ variance is so large and it produces so many qualitative effects, basically just within a race. If you're 130 IQ and the average 
white person is 30 IQ points under you, they, they score on an IQ test about as well as you would have like before the age of 12, probably maybe at 10 mm-hmm. or 11, a 30 point IQ gap. And so it only makes sense. Like they'll have more experience, maybe a slightly different temperament, but they're going to have mm-hmm. a very similar mental state forever to you in your preteens. So that, and when I just think about my mental state in my preteens, and then I look at the behavior of the average 100 IQ person online, when they discuss ideas, politically, stuff like that, it seems to match up really well. You know what I'm saying? Like the amount of understanding of the world matches up really well. The reactions to things, the sort of the intellectual level uh, at which these people operate, they will just proudly, they have the biggest Dunning-Kruger syndrome ever. They will proudly say, uh, you know, no, hey, that uh, that IQ that IQ gap stuff is fake because I read a New York Times article one time that said that race isn't real. Yeah. Ha ha. And it's like that sounds like something a 12 year old would say from my point of view. You know what I mean? Like that sounds like something I would say at 12 yeah. and thought made sense because it doesn't make sense after that age for me. But yet that's a huge chunk of people. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I don't know when was la- when was the last time you were in a classroom um, of say let's say twelve to fourteen year olds. And please do not, please don't say when you were twelve or fourteen because that's going to make me feel old. Um, probably around then. I coached a middle school speech and debate <laughs> team when I was like seventeen, eighteen. So, but they would have been they okay. would have been selected on IQ because the kids that show up to that ah, okay, are going to okay. be more intellectual. But that, that was the last time you were around you know, young, younger kids. Yeah. So you, you, you probably, so even though it was selected, obviously there's still going to be a distribution. I mean, anyone who's been in a classroom um, and the classrooms that I've been in are all still selected because they were private schools. So obviously uh, there's a fairly moderate correlation rate between SES and uh, IQ. So if, even if the school's not selective, if they're only letting in people that can pay $40,000 a year, you're going to get smarter kids. And it's just incredible. Like it's, it's, we, we, even a 100 IQ normie can recognize this fact just, just by reflecting on their time at school, right? Because you, you, you understand that you're, you know, you're, you're positioned in a hierarchy, right? There was that kid who was, just incredible at maths, and those kids also tended to be slightly better than um, the average, or uh, the other, all the other subjects as well. Um, so we've all got that intuitive understanding. But I, I, I remember just coming into a classroom once, and yeah, this may be like twenty kids, twenty, twenty-five kids, and maybe two or three of them were gifted. And you know, this one gif- gifted kid was reading uh, Salman Rushdie. I think he was in year nine so that would have placed him yeah maybe 12 13 years of age um and the other two were obviously the the girls right because they develop earlier so there's a there's a a biological advantage and i just remember thinking it's just just remarkable to see you know once you adopt the sociobiological lens to see that in action because then you speak to that kid on -on one-on-one and they're able like you were saying earlier to entertain these counterfactuals to offer what is for them novel um interpretations of whatever they're reading um you know, you would have a, a, a debate in class about um, whether God exists or you know the, the problem of evil, and it's obviously always the same people who are able to, um, yeah, excel in that kind of Socratic discussion, and and to to adopt a view that this isn't in large part hardwired, i.e., genetic, seems so naive because like, we all we all recognize this, right? Like how how much further back do you have to go? Because if you went back to the to you know, I guess it's um, 
uh, kindergarten, right, in 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 American um, terminology, but in in primary school in the UK, you would see the same thing there. Yes, it's going to be more malleable, right, because of you know, people have different rates of development. But we can all see this. We can all see that from a very very young age. Basically, you identify two or three kids in a class of thirty who are the gifted ones, i.e., an IQ of at least you know, one standard deviation above the mean, and it's usually those kids that track all the way through up to degree level who are the ones offering the novel insights, reading the advanced books. Um, wh- why do you think it is that, you know, I, I feel like it takes a, a hell of a lot of like mimetic psychological warfare to drum out this basic understanding that we all have, that there's just no way this can't be hardwired, right? <laughs> what, what, what is the alternative explanation? Like these six, seven-year-old kids have had this just incredibly different environment that's given them the, these, these extremely different capacities to like the kid in the class who's basically licking his elbows you know, when you ask him a question. Yeah, there really is no alternative explanation. It's mostly politically... To deny uh, hereditarianism is essentially politically motivated. And the... What motivates the politics? It's in turn genetics. I think this is a nice segue into what is the actual mm-hmm. cause of wokeism? Is it bad ideas? Yeah. Is it bad studies that say that uh, it's the environment that causes all this variation in intelligence and that causes the race gaps and stuff like that? There are no studies that seriously say that. Anyone who performs a serious review of the literature comes away with uh, a, a hereditarian understanding of the world. And I, I hold a view that it's really not that complex. Um, you know, the HBD re- research guys who are heavy into researching IQ, they do a great job. But uh, I actually think that the <laughs> the debate has been over since at least the 90s, probably with the bell curve, just for any any sort of person mm-hmm. who's unbiased by politics. Um, like every new study that comes out is is another own against people who are lying about it. But it's like it's it's certain anyone who looks at it through an unbiased lens if you just, I, I like, I, my, my view is cemented with the Minnesota transracial adoption study. They adopted out uh, mm-hmm. black kids to white parents and white kids to white parents. And they found a one standard deviation IQ gap. They also adopted out mixed race kids to white parents and found uh, that they were right in between the black mean and the white mean. And at that point, this is shocking. Yeah, what could possibly explain it? The the leftists basically ignored it. Then they wrote two bad rebuttals like 20 years later. I have a post on this on my Substack. Mm-hmm. It's pretty recent, uh, just called On the Black White IQ Gap, if anybody wants to read about this. And then no, they, they just shoved it away and they ignored it. And they maybe referred to a few like N equals seven twin studies from the 1950s that were performed by frankly, commies in Germany or something that gave different results. But the the best twin study was the Minnesota transracial adoption study. And I just don't see how that accords with any serious uh, environmentalist view. They have to talk about the weird, they're grasping at straws. They talk about um, maternal effects in the womb or weird Freudian stuff about early childhood environments. The black kids Mm -hmm. were still with the, the black parents until the age of four or something like that on average. That's not compelling to me. I've never found any evidence whatsoever that early childhood environments, except for nutrition and maybe exposure to speech actually matter that much. All the, all the other evidence seems to be against that. And leftists seem to just say, well, 
you didn't adopt them out immediately or whatever. You didn't grow them in it. You didn't grow the babies in test tubes to ensure that they had the same wombs mm -hmm. and then adopt them out at birth. So we can't deduce anything from this study. But it's like, ne prove your Freudian stuff. Prove that these little like butterfly effect things that happen to you when you're three actually impact your intelligence when you're 17 years old. I don't see that doesn't make any sense <laughs> to me. So and they yeah. don't provide any evidence for that. So to me, it's been over since the MTRAS. Every new study just seems to agree with the MTRAS. Of course, the admixture studies, the GWAS stuff. Um, but it, it's just it's just such an over debate with respect to policy and, and how the stuff actually works. I see the research now is just basically diving into the molecular genetic stuff. Um, oh, well, and, I was just about to ask you about this. Uh, so like, to, to get into the, some of the more sophisticated straw grasping, as you call it, um, I, you, you, you liked the uh, Aporia magazine post um, asking Sasha Gusev, who I believe is uh, affiliated with uh, Harvard. He's a uh, geneticist specializing, I believe, in cancer research and has done some um, obviously excellent work in that area. Um, but he seems he's quite a vociferous critic of people like Emil Kierkegaard. Um, on Twitter and you know, you, you engages in, I think, unhelpful ad, hom ad hominem, ad hominem attacks, um, and he refused uh, outright to obviously entertain the possibility of debate. Um, and he's probably the leading proponent of this. I, I'm going to, I'm, I'm not going to still man it here because I kind of want you to uh, do, to do that for me and then uh, knock down the view. Um, so I'm just going to call it. Uh, everything, everything is too complex, and can we really get at causality with polygenic scores? Um, and really, until we understand things at the molecular level, uh, all, all bets are off. That seems to be okay. I'm probably being uh, unfair to him, but that seems to be the, the straw grasping that we're now dealing with. Um, so, two questions: Can you explain? Can you put? Can you still man uh, someone like Sasha's worldview if you even understand it? Because it is uh, somewhat contradictory, it seems to me, at the best of times. And then, could you also offer? Um, your own explanation as to why you think we've now got to this level. And if you think we're going to uh, any, it, 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 maybe in like the next five, 10, 15 years, wh whether we're going to push past this with uh, you know, enough biobank data, or basically these people will always find a way to squirrel away and offer some alternative you know, magic dust explanation. I think they'll always deny it. Um, Cause again, I think the evidence is so overwhelming. And so I don't think that I can actually provide something that a uh, Bay Area rationalist type would consider a quote-unquote charitable steel man of this guy's views because mm -hmm. I don't believe that it's in good faith. I just think I just think that these people are in bad faith, honestly. <laughs> I think they're just lying. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as I can tell, uh, Sasha Gusev's specific point is he's citing the study showing that in theory there can be a nonlinear bias on polygenic scores between races, which mm -hmm. means so if you have a bias, it means that the estimate of the racial genetic mean is off by some number. But if you have a linear bias or a constant bias, it's off by the same amount or some linear multiplication of that amount um, for every race, which means it will still rank order them properly. But if you have a nonlinear bias, it's like it could be off by one, one SD for white people and negative two SD for mm -hmm. black people. And so they could both be zero and then it puts black people at negative two and white people at one instead of it being off by negative one for both. And then if they were both zero, it would both show negative one. Right. So and, and so why is why is this theoretically possible in his view? 
Um, honestly, I haven't read his paper. I'm not really, I don't really operate it um, in that research area right now. I don't do GWAS stuff. So I, I'm sure it's theoretically possible, but it just doesn't seem probable. It seems that Emil's rebuttal mm -hmm. is that um, for some reason, every single study that you do rank orders the races exactly like their phenotypes are rank ordered on an IQ test. Mm -hmm. And this is just improbable with a random nonlinear bias. Why would it have a nonlinear bias like Sasha Gusev says could happen, but then give you the expected results under a linear bias uh, every single time? It's just it, it's just incredibly improbable. And basically, Sasha Gusev doesn't have evidence on what the bias actually is. So he can't prove that it is a nonlinear bias. And it's it's just highly improbable that it is. So it's not really a serious critique. And again, this to me, yeah, um, so you, this is just window dressing on a debate that was over in the 90s with respect to what is the cause of yeah. the black-white IQ gap. I see the point of GWAS studies to be building polygenic scores that are useful for embryo selection and just for pure scientific curiosity, maybe for genetic engineering purposes, allowing us to actually find the genes. But I don't see it as necessary for actually knowing with respect to policy what is causing the black-white IQ gap. It's genetics. So his critique is sort of immaterial to me. It's already over. Um, it doesn't mm -hmm. really matter what the bias is. It looks like the GWAS is correct. It, it looks like it's putting out the results that we expect based on all the other evidence. That that other evidence matters a lot. And um, he, people like him have moved on to this epistemic point of view where they just want to throw out all the non-GWAS evidence because it's not yeah. molecular or something. They just claim it's invalid and ignore <laughs> it. And then they do, they run interference like this and say, GWAS is really complex and multifaceted and dynamic, whatever, and could have a nonlinear bias and linkage disequilibrium and all this can produce, mm -hmm. uh, you know, racial bias in the, in the tests or whatever. And people of color are, are underrepresented in biobanks. And so we can't know anything from GWAS and all that twin study stuff is, is fake and not molecular. So really, we don't know anything at all, which means we have to keep up the welfare forever <laughs> or whatever for the next 30 yeah. years until everything is finally sorted out in the GWAS sphere. And it's like, no, no, I don't accept that. It's just really bad arguing, really bad faith. Like I said, I, I couldn't steel man his view because I don't believe it to be a honest point of view. I don't think he's starting from an unbiased view of pure scientific curiosity and then getting to the positions mm -hmm. that he holds. I don't think that's possible. Yeah, well, I, I would love to speak with him because, you know, obviously, uh, you know, I'm not a geneticist and it would be very interesting if there is a, um, a legitimate point there. And I, I, I do find it hard to think that you can go through uh, you know, your entire life, your entire academic career and basically lie to yourself for the sake of political advancement i'm sure you know, it, it 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 just seems implausible to me like there, there must be more than an element of belief there I, 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 my i would hedge that he, he he does believe it um it'd be interesting to have a discussion i mean just so we'll, we'll draw a line onto this topic because I, as you say it's kind of for the people listening the debate is kind of over and it's now just rearranging deck chairs on the titanic um but just so people are clear, those that don't have a background, uh, haven't read the genetics literature, what we're essentially saying is like, if you look at the, um, you know, like the height GWAS, right, and you look at the, and you correlate it with the phenotype, you often find, you know, population differences are, I think, almost like one for one, right? So the, the people that have more uh, genes that 
um, code for height are the ones who shockingly are actually taller um, when you look at their phenotypic height, because obviously height is incredibly heritable. Um, and I don't know, you, you might want to make one reply here. I guess that the other uh, slight dodge that these people make is uh, they don't like you saying things like uh, there are good and bad genes, right? Obviously, you know, Huntington's is a, is a bad gene, but what they mean is you, know, you always have to qualify it. You always have to caveat with it depends on the environment. So actually, I think Sasha attacked um, uh, David Hugh jo- Jones um, uh, when Cremure retweeted one of uh, David's latest papers. And David, I think, then retweeted the retweet or Cremure did a summary. David retweeted the summary just with like a smiley face. You know, I guess like, uh, you know, thank you for uh, amplifying this. Um, and in Cremure's um, summary, he made this uh, to the, the the liberal, the leftist, the environmentalist, whatever you want to call them, this this faux pas, this misstep of saying something like, you know, um, there are good genes and people inherit good genes and then, hey, presto, you find that they're you know, uh, high SES or whatever it is. Um, so as you were saying, like if you were just being parsimonious and scientifically curious, you would look at all of the data. You wouldn't just say, we're going to throw out anything that's not genetic. Um, and you would say, okay, well, does this accord with my view of reality of how the world looks? And by and large, that seems to be the hereditarian um, position. It does accord with reality. If you define hereditarianism as like, you know, uh, the population gaps, let's say the black-white IQ gap in this case, is at least 50% caused by genetics and, and uh, by genes and probably more. Um, so before we draw a line under that, is there anything you want to say about that other weird move they make about um, there are really no good or bad genes? It all depends upon the environment. It just shows that they're political activists because they were responding to health genes. The genes that were being called good were genes that make you resistant to stuff like schizophrenia and heart disease and cancer. (laughs) So literally like 99.9% of the population agrees that those are good genes. There's never really going to be any change to the environment such that those don't become good genes. Uh, So that, that, that cope, like, well, what if the environment changed and then cancer genes became good? What would that environment look like? That's just not plausible. So, and, and so the point was that you take genes that are associated with IQ and those are neither good nor bad, right? Those just are morally neutral mm-hmm. or whatever, but then you find that they correlate with heart resist or heart disease resisting genes. And that's because higher IQ people make more money and then marry spouses that have better health and beauty and stuff like that. Stuff that people like universally agree that is good. So then the, the higher IQ upper class becomes more eugenic and uh, universally agreed on ways. And, and then they, they come in and they're like, hold on, there are no good and bad genes. So what they're saying is this sort of just like emotional appeal where they, they are saying that uh, like Huntington's disease genes actually are equally as good as non-Huntington's disease genes, right? Like, hold, like, hold on a second, being uh, disabled and dying in your 40s or whatever, a terrible brain disease, we don't want to say that that's bad or anything because how would that make people mm-hmm. that are dying of that terrible disease feel? Uh, there's a similar thing among like deafness, disability activists, where mm. they protest against people trying to cure deafness. And they say it's not a disease, it's yeah. their way of life. It's very weird because it makes them feel bad or something if they're verbally reminded that they have a disability. But like all sane people don't want to be deaf. Right? It doesn't mean you have to treat deaf people terribly, but like it is a disability. I would <laughs> like to, if I went deaf, I would like to have my hearing restored. If I lost a limb, I'd like to... Yeah. 
have a artificial limb installed and I, w I wouldn't, I'd be mad if somebody said, actually, it's perfectly valid to be a quadriplegic. Well, I don't want to be bound to a wheelchair. That's, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to block research working on artificial limbs or whatever, because it might make people that don't have all four limbs right now feel bad, like they're inadequate. It's, it's just so weird. <laughs> what do you think about these uh, people, I, I'm sure you've read this Wikipedia page. These people who would like to select so that they have a uh, like they're, they're dwarfs, for example, they want to have a um, a dwarf child, they want to have a blind child or a deaf child. I, the, I think on the Wikipedia page for um, I can't remember what it is now, but you can find it if you just you know, do some creative googling. Um, I think um, the we have had a deaf child created um, deliberately, and I think. Uh, the same for dwarfism. What do you think that says about society that we, this is, I mean, obviously that is, you know, the, a normal person would find that incredibly bizarre because I think a normal person recognizes this is obviously a disability, um, but that this is seemingly not prohibited. What yeah. does that say about us? I mean, in theory, if it's also not prohibited to make a super intelligent child that doesn't have any disabilities and has the physique of Harrison Bergeron, you know, then more power to them, I guess. I would prefer to not get the government involved in banning genetic modification because it's a very quick, slippery slope to you can't do embryo selection on intelligence and health. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I would just prefer no government regulation over just gen general government regulation. But yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty sick if that's happening more, if people are more interested in making deaf children than very fit children. That's that's just very gross and goes with the general dysgenic uh, trend. That's actually something I worry about is embryo selection rises. I worry about uh, dysgenic selection for temperament by parents because it seems like a mm. lot of parents want to have a child with they, they have a mismatch on the sort of temperament that is actually fit versus the sort of temperament they want to have in a child. They want to have a slavish and obedient child, but that's not a very fit temperament. Right. Like to me, the uh, ideal, the ideal future of man is one where you have people that are very autonomous and independent and intelligent, stuff like that. And I very much worry that people who um, are more like that are more independent themselves will actually selfishly select to have slave like children just uncritically uh, without thinking about the future because they will select for genes that lower behavior problems in kids mm -hmm. or whatever, or lower quote unquote criminality. These are like going to, to some degree, like some genes that increase behavior problems and criminality might be genes that are associated with lower IQ, maybe stuff like having um, too, like too bad of a temperament on the uh, quick to anger end of the spectrum, but taken to the extreme, it can also basically destroy individuality and free thought stuff like that like if if you if you minimize criminality if you minimize behavior problems as a kid you have people that can't think for themselves by definition you have people who just always do what they're told and so i very i very much worry about people sort of mass selecting for those genes if they could just select the temperament of their kid on a screen so they might they might select a higher iq kid but it will be like a uh a, a gamma in temperament from brave new world. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you worry about um, 
the collective action problems that emerge when you you know you have this libertarian ethos towards something like embryo selection and uh, people select against the genes that code for schizophrenia and then you only need that to happen on mass for a handful of generations before you probably have no artists in your society yeah stuff like that could happen too um i haven't really looked into that i don't know what the link is but this is a general problem where um Maybe you have a trait under stabilizing selection where too much of it is bad, uh, too little of it is bad. You need something in the middle, right? So you don't want to have an extreme amount of schizophrenia predisposing genes or else you'll become schizophrenic. But if you have no schizophrenic uh, risk increasing genes, then yeah, you might have no creativity whatsoever. So hopefully we can just come up Hopefully we can keep that in mind when embryo selection begins and try to select for children that have uh, golden mean traits. Um, so you don't want somebody with uh, 0% schizophrenia risk or whatever. Maybe you want like a, a moderate mm-hmm. risk, but not too high of a risk. So you select against embryos that have incredibly low null risks. Maybe by creating, maybe by... Um, you could do this maybe by having a risk score for schizophrenia, but then also having a creativity score that you want to weigh against it. Mm-hmm. And in theory, these would be negatively correlated. So if you choose a kid or no, they'd be positively correlated. So if you choose a kid with no schizophrenia risk, it will also have very, very low creativity or very, very low creativity index. So you would want to actually balance those scores against each other. So you allow for a little bit more um, schizophrenia risk so that you select for higher, a higher creativity index. Um, but if you select for too high of a creativity index, then your schizophrenia risk goes over some threshold. So yeah, um, selecting on basically traits under stabilizing selection does have to be done carefully. I would, I would agree with this or else it can lead to um huge lack of genetic fitness after a few generations. If everyone just naively selects directionally, um, just way just under the, where the, the mean should be for ideal fitness. So let's, let's, um, maneuver back here to the, uh, James Lindsay view of historical change. Uh, this is obviously a view uh, espoused by many other people. I mean, it's basically the water in which the mainstream intelligentsia left and right swim in, right? So the idea goes something like, um, if we're talking about the origins of woke, some radicals come along in the 60s. And of course, they're like the etiology of this will, will go back. Nobody's saying that they just emerge out of thin air, at least I hope nobody's saying that. And they write some books and they get it, they're embedded within the university system and therefore they have influence and uh, people read those books. You read Simone de Beauvoir, you become a feminist. Now, obviously I, I don't think um, I, I, I'm, I'm, if anything, straw manning the view because people, I think even those people who make this analysis the people that write the books would probably say things like, oh yeah, people don't change their mind by reading a book. They change their mind by, um, you know, by, by action, right? So you, you, you perhaps change your abortion, uh, your view on abortion by having an abortion or knowing someone who has, and you, know, you suddenly become pro-life, whatever it is that like, that's mainly how people change their views. Um, this is obviously, you know, Hyatt's view in um, the righteous mind. 
Um, however, this is generally speaking the the analysis of um, you know how how things like wokeism, how all um, intellectual changes arise. Why do you think this is silly, and how do you think uh, wokeism, to use one example, actually came about? So it's silly because it's blank slatist. It's just as blank slatist as saying that the black-white IQ gap is caused by the environment. And in turn, because it's blank slatist, it's based on no science or data whatsoever. It's just something that pundits made up. And it's not hard to see why pundits would make it up. It's, again, appealing to whatever sort of bias uh, that is innate in man causes this general blank slatist trend. And it's appealing to pundits because it centers them. Um, it sort of aggrandizes their position in society. It says, hey, I'm important because ideas move history. And what do I do? I write ideas. So what caused leftism? Mm -hmm. Books, obviously. Well, what do I do? I write books. So I'm you know, leading the fight against leftism because I'm writing books against leftism. And clearly this is going to make a huge impact because everything is moved by ideas. So it's this sort of self-filating view of the world that you see it's just very... These, these pundits who do all the writing will be biased towards it, um, but it, it doesn't have a single shred of evidence. And in fact, when you really dig into it, um, there's no sort of systematized perspective here. You talked about James Lindsay potentially, in theory, walking back his view about uh, people changing their mind from reading books. That's ad hoc. That's an ad hoc explanation. They're not up. They're not upfront with a quantitative theory about how people change their minds. They just recognize that if you push them and you say, so people really change their minds from reading stuff like Herbert Marcuse, which is unreadable and boring. They really change their minds from that. How many people even, I did a post on my Substack where I counted how many copies his, his book sold and said, how many people even read these books? Very few people actually read these books. Mm -hmm. So it can't account for the change in leftism over time. And then obvious, so obviously what they've been implying vaguely uh, has been made to look silly. So they just invent an epicycle, just like all blank slaters do, right? They, they'd say that lead causes the IQ, the black, white IQ gap. And then you do a study and you show that there's very little difference in lead exposure between the races. And maybe it could account for half an IQ point difference. <laughs> and then they walk it back and it's something else, stereotype threat. They don't care. They're just ad hoc, uh, they're ad hoc epicycle generating machines because they're not arguing in good faith. So I, I wouldn't really, again, just like with uh, Sasha Gusev and the black white IQ gap, when it comes to historical idealists, I would not take them seriously. Um, it would be a mistake to seriously get into their views as if it's an actual scientific model of the world. It's not. It's They're arguing in bad faith, in essence. They are maybe grifting. They want money. Again, they're self-filating. They're aggrandizing their own role in history. And they're ultimately not actually interested in doing science or discovering actual facts about the world or having a real model about the world. They want to entertain people. The, the role I ascribe to pundits is just entertainment, in essence. They're entertainers, mm -hmm. and that's how they make their money. And really what they're doing is they're entertaining, and they want to make their money from entertaining, and they want to maximize their income. And in some cases, they do this really well. Like Jordan Peterson has made, I think, millions of dollars off of his entertainment career. And he's one of these people who has a completely idealistic view 
of history and talks about how important it is to spread ideas and stuff like that. I think he blames it on cultural Marxism, um, the Frankfurt School, something like that. It's not a serious scientific view. It's calculated to maximize his income and it works. Mm -hmm. And it's also very easy to come up with. It's a nice intuitive view that doesn't make people think very deeply. Uh, so it maximizes his income per hour of work. You can just uh, spout this stuff with no work. I work very hard to come up with my ideas and to provide evidence for them. And in return, I get way less income. I don't, I don't make really hardly any income off of what I do online. I just do this as a hobby, essentially. Um, and so you have idealists out here who put no effort into their, into their concepts. They're just in like usually recycling from other idealists actually uh, who in turn just came up with something on a blog. Like Curtis Yarvin was one of the first iterations of these people in the 21st century. And I, I actually have a section in my manuscript, which I will post a link to on my Substack after this podcast, uh, talking about uh, against word cells, against these people who just talk and don't collect any data. And I actually document lightly the the history and the development of uh, historical idealism on the contemporary dissident right. And it starts with Curtis Yarvin. And this is a guy who collects no data, never reads any studies. And he's actually just writing a blog around 2008, um, talking about how he wants to invent an ideology. And he's doing like this weird verbal libertarian-esque reasoning from first principles. And he comes up with this idea where it's the cathedral. And so who's actually in power is the college professors. And how do how did leftism arise? It's because it maximizes the power and income of college professors somehow. He has no evidence for this, of course. And they spread it to people when they go through academia or watch the leftist media. There's a bunch of evidence I've, I've collected debunking this. It's not a true view. But he at least has one of the most fleshed out views. And then you have Jordan Peterson and James Lindsay coming along and basically aping Curtis Yarvin, actually, and kind of just recycling his stuff, but dumbing it down more and making it even more vague and even less systematized and just blaming it on the Frankfurt School and then making millions of dollars off of this by speaking to huge audiences who really eat the stuff up. And at no point do they do any actual work. Again, they're entertainers. They're not scientists. So it's not a real view of the world. Um Again, in this in this new book I have coming up, I go through all this. Uh, I debunk a lot of the more specific idealist claims, even though they're not serious claims. There's still some stuff that can actually be falsified in there. Um, and then I, I present, I, I debunk uh, cultural evolution in general. So the most serious instance of historical idealism would come from people who call themselves cultural evolutionists. These people um, are not entertainers. They're actually blank, blank slate as academic scientists who want to inject uh, basically a blank slate view of how what's called human culture, like human mass behavior can change through history without genetic change. They want to provide a reason mm -hmm. how um, mass practices can change radically without any genetic change being necessary whatsoever, because without this, without this model, without cultural evolution, you basically have to say by process of elimination that uh, huge mass changes in temperament and stuff like that are essentially genetic in nature. So without cultural evolution, if you have a huge moral shift from uh, 
Roman paganism in like one, uh, 100 BC to Christianity in 600 AD, you have to say that people evolved to be genetic Christians, essentially. And the, the Christianity is just the um, phenotypic expression of this new genetic Christianity that was somehow selected for. Cultural evolutionists really hate that because they want to be blank slatists. So they have to come up with this model where somehow Christianity is informatic and the, this information actually spreads um, and causes the radical behavior change. But this, this is, of course, I don't find there to be any evidence of this. You find uh, the cultural evolutionists basically not having mathematical models for the most part and doing really bad studies where they don't verify actual mathematical models. Um, some of them do have mathematical models, like the Boyd-Richardson model from the 1980s. And they're really bad. So they look at, uh, um, to create their model, they look at the similarity between parents and children. And they conclude that that similarity is all due to vertical culture. I kid you not. <laughs> Isn't that insane? It's, it's a variant of the sociologist fallacy, which roughly speaking is a fallacy mm. where a, a social scientist looks at a correlation that could be explained by genetics. They ignore genetic similarity as a latent third factor and say that uh, one, one variable explains, causally explains the other variable. So in this case, it's a correlation between uh, parent and child behavior. And they say parent behavior causes child behavior through vertical cultural transmission <laughs> instead of the shared genes causing the similarity, right? And it's, it's the shared genes. So I look at a bunch of studies that show that vertical cultural transmission is fake for stuff like politics. The consensus is that liberalism conservatism is heritable in between 60 and 70 percent and that none of it is shared environment or vertical cultural transmission, uh, contrary to the claims of cultural evolutionists who create these overly complicated mathematical models where they're centering ideas about vertical cultural transmission and stuff like that. And in general, I conclude in this uh, in this beta chapter of my book that um the cultural evolution models, which is the best scientific uh, presentation of historical idealism, essentially, they rely on two main assumptions that are not supported. Uh, these assumptions are that um, it is very costly and time consuming to transmit information, cultural information, and that there is very low genetic bias for information. So what this means is that there's a lot of variance in what information people are exposed to, and it will tend to cluster in families and local communities because it takes years and years and years, decades, 18 years, whatever, to expose people and to install a culture in them. If this was not true, if information transmission was very rapid, you would quickly have very little variance in information. Everyone would be exposed to all information as the rapidness of information transmission increases, right? Because mm -hmm. it, it, it would take two seconds to be exposed to any sort of cultural practice, whatever, any sort of idea about the world in general that could impact your behavior. So you would instantly have no actual variance in informatic exposure. Um, and then vertical culture would disappear because it doesn't really matter what your parents say to you. You're also hearing what everyone is saying to their kids, too. And then you're deciding between that. <laughs> and what, what we, in fact, see... And so basically you can set up an argument where if, um, if information, so time consuming inform, informatic transmission implies high vertical cultural transmission, but we look at the data and we see that 
there is no vertical cultural transmission for at least politics. So this implies that any memes that affect politics are rapidly transmitted. They don't, they're not time consuming to transmit by, by modus tollens, right? Because mm -hmm. if, if they were, if, if you would see vertical, you would see a lot of vertical culture if they were time consuming to transmit. So you actually don't really have variance in what political ideas people are exposed to. Now, the other thing is how do people accept an idea when they're exposed to it? You could have, uh, it, that's, that's the genetic bias scheme. And, and in general, um, the cultural evolutionists claim low genetic bias, which means people sort of just randomly accept memes that they're exposed to. Um, there's no real pattern. If you expose people to a set of memes, they'll just pick one from a under a uniform. Probably, if you expose people to three competing memes, they'll pick each one one third of the time, and it's not going to be correlated with their genetics. If you have genetic bias, it means that the meme that they pick when they're exposed to three competing memes correlates with their genetics. So as, as bias goes up, it's it's more genetically determined. And if you expose people to mm -hmm. three different memes. Um, 99% of the time, like genetic conservatives will take the conservative memes and genetic liberals will take the liberal meme. And so what you see is there's, there's going to be a high, um, covariance between genes and memes insofar as memes are even real. And that's going to be basically, I call that gene driven memetics because basically what, what that is saying is that the genes are using the memes for their own ends. There's no such thing as a mind virus. Um, it's basically impossible to install a meme that is incompatible with the genetics when there's high genetic bias. Mm -hmm. So memes basically are just tools that genomes use. And they're not like a standalone thing when there's high genetic bias. And it does look like that, at least in politics, there's extremely high genetic bias. Um, when you expose people to stuff like HBD and they're liberal, they just reject it. They don't care. When they're conservative, mm -hmm. they accept it. And it doesn't really change their behavior significantly. Maybe it helps them be more effective conservatives, but it doesn't really significantly mm -hmm. change what they think about the world. And you can see this in part because if you look at the literature, people are not very gullible. Liberals actually do not live around black people or liberals commit just as much white flight as conservatives, which is yeah. weird. So it's saying that um, they, they don't take even though they don't take memes seriously that tell them to live around black people that they don't like <laughs> their genes, their, their genes, <laughs> yeah, their genes still reject those memes, even though they're liberal. So they're only accepting memes that feel good to them genetically. And are acting hypocritic, what would seem to be hypocritically from a point of view of, from like an idealist point of view, where they're operating on some sort of verbal ideology. And so there's this very high genetic bias. So the, uh, really what you see, and, and the, the crown jewel of all of this is basically that for politics, again, like I said, uh, there's no shared environment component that really explains any differences. There's no vertical cultural transmission component. It's basically all heritability. So all genetics plus uh, noise in the measurements, like E squared, which is just random, typically mm -hmm. random noise. And I, I have a post about randomness in politics. Views are very stable over a lifetime in keeping with this high heritability. Um, they don't, so the, the heritability is predominant and then the E squared, the randomness component, that's mostly due. I predict that you can get a heritability of like 80 to 90% if you actually develop a really good 
politics scale. I think that most of the politics tests mm -hmm. that you that we've taken heritabilities of, it's amazing that we've gotten 60 to 70 percent heritability scores from them because they're really bad. Like the best one that's out there is the Wilson Patterson conservative conservatism scale. And it asks people a bunch of random mm -hmm. stuff like about the death penalty and like about discipline in schools and stuff like that, stuff that doesn't seem very mm -hmm. general leftism loaded, right? Like random stuff that will produce noise. But then it also asks about like race, homosexuality, feminism, which I think are the core things. So I'm actually developing a scale. Um, I'm actually developing what I call general leftism. And it's supposed to be Gaussian. And it right now it's focusing. So I, I've done some tests on this on prolific and I get something that's approximately Gaussian. It has issues at the tails. But in between negative two and two standard deviations, it's basically Gaussian. Um, and it only asks about views on LGBT, race, and feminism, which seems to be core to me. And it has um, all the items have like really high, like over 0.8 factor loanings on general leftism. And so I don't have a twin mm -hmm. study of the score, but I predict that I could get like an 80% heritability on this with nothing for shared environment. And so it's very similar to IQ, nothing for shared environment and nothing for vertical cultural transmission. And the rest would just be the remaining measurement error, which um, if you do a linear regression, it, it, that means like a gene score would correlate with the general leftism score at R equals 0.9. And then, and so it would be like mm -hmm. a very straight line. And then the noise component would correlate with the general leftism score at R equals like 0.4. And that's just like a cloud of data. If you're, that's just like a, a cloudy, that's just like a scatter plot that it's hard to see a trend in if you actually view it. And so basically that means I, I predict that I would get an overwhelmingly genetic, um, genetic causation for general leftism. And that's supported by these crappier, again, these more noisy, crappier versions of general leftism, like Wilson Patterson conservatism, still getting like 60, 70% heritability scores in uh, twin studies. So they, that really constrains uh, under the breeders equation. There's this equation that says the selection, the response to selection is proportional to the heritability. When you have like a 0.1 heritability and you select for a trait heavily, if you, if the breeding, if the, if the parents are one standard deviation on average, the kids will only be 0.1 SD if there's a 10% heritability. That, that's what the breeder's equation says. If there's a 90% heritability, the kids of one SD parents will be 0.9 SD on average. So basically, the lower the heritability is, um, the lower the response to selection. So you can also apply this to mimetics. We can't, at, at time, like at a single time, like right now, we can't really find any variance due to mimetics. So... How do you blame it when you go through time? What meme is being selective for that is increasing general leftism by like one, almost one standard deviation in over the last 100 years? What meme is that when there's no when at a single time the the memetability is like zero? There's no variance to select mm -hmm. for, right? <laughs> there's like no variance at a single time to select for. And if you just look intuitively out into the meme sphere, it's like, what idea am I supposed to be getting exposed to that makes me leftist? There really isn't one, yeah. right? Leftists, leftists just seem to lie and be in bad faith and to mostly not really understand ideas. To just say stuff that's like incoherent about IQ studies, stuff like that. 
So it very clearly doesn't seem like ideas. So by process of elimination, you basically whittle it down to leftism is caused by genetics or the economy, like economic incentives. But there's really no variance due to economic incentives either. We can't really find any economic incentives to select for that within the mean would shift on economic incentives over time. And just intuitively, it doesn't seem like leftism is really caused by economic incentives. People talk about corporations and immigration, but there's always alternatives. Uh, really, really rich corporations are basically really, really rich no matter what. So like they could send home 50% of the H-1B visa software workers. I have a substack on how the average American software engineer uh, is paying a, an opportunity cost of $90,000 a year to have 40% of the field be H-1B visa workers. Google would still be a billion dollar company if they sent home all the H-1B visa workers. It doesn't matter to them. So it's mostly politics, not economic incentives. Um, voters, like I think the average voter is basically harmed by mass immigration, <laughs> like even Democrats. So it's 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 genetics and not economic incentives for voters. Um and that's on race. And then feminism, maybe there's economic incentives for corporation women, but it's doing a number on men. No men should ever support feminism, basically, uh, at the anonymous poll. Yet they do. You have the rise of male simps, and this actually precedes the rise of feminism. I have a th theory that feminism is actually mainly caused by male simping and not really a change in women. The change is that men get less mm. strict and dominating over women, basically, and then just let women do whatever they want. There's not really a change in women. Um, and so that's obviously contrary to the economic incentives of 99% of men. Maybe it's good for corporations who want to mass employ women. But again, mm -hmm. um, power is not that powerful. So I think we really do have a democracy to some degree. So I, I have a post on this on my Substack called uh, Against Keith Woods, a brief critique of, critique of Keith Woods, why democracy is fake. Um, and so you, you can't really explain the rise of feminism with ideas or economic incentives. And finally, the LGBT stuff is really weird. Uh, people a hundred years ago had huge disgust responses to homosexual sex mm -hmm. and there's no economic incentive for that whatsoever. It's like less than 3% of the population. Um, they're not being mass employed. They'd be employed anyway. They'd just have to stay in the closet. And there's no idea that causes that. So you very clearly see the disgust response to homosexuality, like genetically rotting in people. And this allows homosexual behavior to increase. And so by process of elimination and the twin studies on politics at a single time and the debunking of the cultural evolution theories, you basically arrive at the fact that somehow leftism is increasing due to changes in genetics. It's because of evolution. And this is, this is also in line. There's even more evidence. There's stuff on Peter Turchin. If you examine the decline of empires, what happens at the end, they become leftists. This is a huge unexplored territory. Mm. I want to produce a section in my book. Um, I'm going to put it on my Substack first. So this is something I'm working on thoroughly documenting. We don't really have data from, these studies, but I want to verbally document the uh, thoroughly the increase in feminism, homosexuality, and mass immigration uh, during the decline of Rome and potentially other empires. I know for a fact that it was a thing in Rome. Rome got way gayer uh, as it declined from 0 AD to 400 AD. You had um, 
the leaders going from being very respectable to being like transsexual and being gay bottoms and stuff like that. If you just read about the emperors, it's very clear dysgenics. Uh, you have mass immigration into Rome. They just expand citizenship infinitely. They stop caring about the Roman race or whatever. There's mass immigration from Northern Africa, the Middle East, and from Gaul and wherever. And the the barbarians, those Northern Europeans too, um, hopefully genetic studies can back this up, but Julius Caesar describes them as being incredibly low IQ, which is very, very possible considering... Um, that it was 2000 years ago, like British people. First off, there was a bunch of mass immigration into Britain. So like modern British people are not what was living in Britain in 80 BC when Caesar was there or whenever it was around that time. So mm -hmm. th those people were a different race. They were way more Celtic, which even now Celts are stereotyped as being sort of backwards. I don't know how much of that I've read. Mm -hmm. I don't really know the, the tea on uh, Irish IQ right now. But, but that's a thing even, even today. And back then you have uh, 2000 years to increase IQ <laughs> genetically. So it's very plausible that their mean IQ is like 85 or 90. So that's like the, the Northern Europeans are kind of like uh, Mexicans to Americans, right? They're not fully Roman. Mm -hmm. They're not like, they're not fully white in a modern sense, even if they're blonde, they're like 92 IQ maybe. And we, I, I need to look at the ancient genome stuff and see if there's GWASs on ancient Celts or whatever that back this up. But that that's what uh, Caesar described. He talked about how just low IQ they were in his, in his speeches and stuff because he was there. And so they have those people mass immigrating and mixing. And then you have recent studies actually showing the results of this on the population of Rome. Um, it's on OpenPsych. It's Roman IQ dysgenics. So as the mass immigration is happening, they actually go from having like a mean IQ of 110 or something like that, according to GWAS, to having a mean IQ uh, during the imperial decline period of like 95. And so that's probably the effect of mass immigration as well as elite infertility, which is also happening today, of course. And elite infertility more mm -hmm. has to do with feminism. So in ancient Rome, you go from a culture under the Roman Republic where they have laws talking about uh, the size of the rod you can discipline your wife with to that just totally disappearing. They had like uh, arranged marriages and fathers could execute daughters or wives for adultery and stuff like that. That disappears. Um, there's texts about the women all becoming wine ants. There's a great text um, about the women harassing the men to give them more rights. Like specifically they were harassing men to allow them to wear uh, luxurious jewelry and stuff like that. There was a Roman Republic law during the Punic Wars that banned women wearing uh, luxurious jewelry and purple and stuff like that in, in public. So that's very similar to stuff from 100 years ago, like Moors about women having to be dressed well, stuff like that. And now women just walk around in pajamas and short shorts or whatever. <laughs> uh, Yoga pants. And so the Romans dismantled that because they became simps during the decline of the empire and their wives were just harassing them. Hey, let us wear gold jewelry. Let us wear purple stuff. Let us be barely dressed or whatever. They go from veiling, basically, like uh, ancient Greek women and early ancient Roman women would, would always wear a veil, just like in Islamic countries. That's a sign of uh, a strong patriarchy. And they get rid of that and they get rid of all their female dress code stuff. And 
the and then people stop marrying too just like now for feminist reasons because the men are not really being patriarchal over the women and so they're all just sleeping around so they had a, a sexual revolution <laughs> the romans had a sexual revolution <laughs> before their empire declined so but was that because they read Marcuse? Who did they read? <laughs> Which philosophers caused this? Yeah. <laughs> it's genetics. It's their genetic decline. It's dysgenics. So, and there's some evidence that this happened in Babylon and other other empires which declined. So, I want to systematize this. It might not be quantitative because there, again, there's. I'll try to. There's not very many GWAS studies on ancient genomes right now. So I'll include what there is, but doing new GWAS studies is a bit beyond my means right now. Um, so I'm not going to do any original GWAS studies because I don't really have access to that. And whoever does is basically doing those. Like whoever has access to what exists is, is doing them insofar as it can be done. But I want to at least compile all in one place, all the verbal evidence, because people seem to be unaware of this. That's a huge red pill. Like no one talks about ancient empire mm -hmm. decline, really in a substantive way. So it, I want to make it sort of undeniable that this is, this is a pattern throughout history and it's most likely genetic through process of elimination, just considering the broad, the, the broad amount of all the data, stuff like that. So before we move on to the natural segue of mutational load here, um, Bo wanted me to ask you a specific question to kind of tease out, um, you know, the how you how you see at the extremes i guess the role of uh, genetics versus culture and the economy so if we look at the classic example of north korea and south korea so south korea in 1965 and south korea in 2023 mm -hmm. are you quite happy to say that this is obviously like a cultural economic shift i would not use the word culture i actually strongly recommend the tabooing of the word culture. Tabooing is a term that I have stolen from the rationalists. It means <laughs> just not using a term because it's biased and bad. Um, and I think culture mm -hmm. is one of those terms and it should never be used. If you want to refer to culture, you need to be more specific. It's still po possible to refer to what people usually mean by culture. What people usually mean by culture is informatics. So like I said, I, I use memes or information to be more specific. And when I was talking about cultural evolution, I was talking about informatic variants, right? I did that for a reason instead of talking about cultural mm -hmm. variants. The reason for this is there's a manuscript from, uh, there's a monoscript from the 1950s that ex shows what I know to be true just from listening to people talk about culture. There are over 160 different definitions of culture, and they cluster into three main categories. One is using it as a dog whistle for race and genes. One is using it uh, as a euphemism for phenotype. And one is using it as a euphemism for information. So we just need to be more specific. We can just talk about race and genetics overall mass behavior, what people are doing, and informatics, the sort of information they have access to, and how that might influence what they're doing compared to other groups who maybe have different information in theory. So this is a much more exact way of talking. Mm -hmm. So when you break it down, it's like, okay, why? What are the, what's the differences of North Korea and South Korea? Well, it obviously has something to do with um, tyranny and power and not really about information. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right? So there's, there's this foreign, this foreign dictatorship and i call it foreign now it's not so foreign maybe it's kind of propped up by china but in the beginning it was propped up by the soviet union it was a stalinist dictatorship just like in eastern europe propped up by the russians 
in North Korea. So they were basically the best way to model it. Model it is they were occupied by um, a foreign government, basically. And so is that an informatic change? If you had Chinese soldiers on every street corner telling you to bow down to Mao Zedong, that'd be a cultural change, a genetic change. Well, it's like foreign. It's a special case. It's a foreign invasion. Doesn't apply to the to U.S. history because we don't have anything like that. Well, there there are the people who say that we live under an occupation government, but there's a bunch of data against that idea too. Uh, that that's a sort of schizo belief because it's like seems obviously not true, but obviously is true in North Korea and countries like that. Like again, the other example would be East and West Germany. So, um, mm-hmm. and so I actually want to address that in my book. That's what I call the study of exousiology, which means the study of power, um, because that obviously has a lot to do with North Korea. Actually, isn't I think America basically is a democracy. North Korea isn't a democracy. Non-democracies can exist, and we want to know why and how and how those systems are stable and stuff like that and how that actually impacts mass behavior. But it's it's not relevant to leftism in America because I think that it's pretty clear that that's, that's not a factor. Like we have, we've had a democracy for the last like 250 years. And leftism has arisen in this democracy. We were never invaded by the Soviet Union and then told top down to uh, in segregation or whatever. So the, the North Korea, South Korea thing is sort of a, a red herring and not act applicable to examining the rise of leftism in Western countries. What is mutational load? Okay, so mutational load refers to if you have a parental generation and then you have a first offspring generation, uh, the mutational load of that offspring in adulthood are the is the amount of de novo, so brand new mutations, right? So genes that they did not receive from their parents, but rather they were mutated uh, physically through like physics processes hit by hit by uh, solar rays and stuff like that and therefore changed into different genes so it's genes that they have which are not identical by descent to their parents and so the mutational load of an f1 generation is essentially the the number of de novo mutations they carry in adulthood and so this can vary because there is what's called purifying selection when you have hard conditions. So mutation, everyone should learn this in like ninth grade biology class. Mutations tend to be deleterious because of entropy. There's a lot of, or there's very few ways something can be arranged in a nice working fashion, but there's a lot of ways something can go wrong. So it's like a car engine where there's like one way your engine works and there's a million ways it can go wrong. And so a mutation is like a mutation to your car engine is like the, uh, the, the oil pan breaking and all the oil leaking out, or I don't know much about car engines. I think one time my, uh, starting the starting mechanism went out or whatever in my engine. Another time, um, like some sort of rubber belt in there broke. And so those are all mutations and they all tend to be deleterious. They don't, Mm -hmm. they don't make the engine better. And that's because there's like one way to have a good engine and a bunch of, bunch of ways for it to break. And it's like that with mutational load. So generally, generally speaking, like 99.9% of mutations are deleterious. So they tend to make the offspring less fit. And so offspring with more mutations that are more deleterious will actually die in childhood or in the womb or whatever. Fun fact, um, there's a lot of 
genes that just code for basic things like dream development, like a huge chunk of the genome codes for stuff that basically can't go wrong in any way. Because of this, a lot of people don't know this, but there's like a 40, 50% miscarriage rate that women have because mutations are very common. Mm -hmm. And often it leads to in-womb purifying selection where the babies can't even develop right. And sometimes they can Mm -hmm. develop right, but they have catastrophic disorders where they're so, you know, just they're so disabled coming out of the womb, but sometimes it's more subtle and with more subtle mutations, maybe the immune system is slightly affected and uh, under strong purifying select selected uh, selecting conditions, they would basically die in childhood at a higher rate. So dying in childhood would be correlated with the number of de novo mutations you have. And so the adult, the first adult generation of the parental generation will have less mutations under conditions, harsher conditions of purifying selection. But as everyone makes it through childhood, as infant mortality goes down, the mutational load, the number of de novo mutations, the average number per person, let's say, um, in the F1 generation will actually increase. And this will have subtle deleterious effects relative to generations that make it to adulthood under strong purifying selection conditions. And so the hypothesis is that uh, leftism is essentially mutational load on uh, groupish moral systems. These moral systems may be group selected. I don't think that that's necessary because there's a whole debate over if group selection is even possible in humans. I think it might be, but actually, I think it's immaterial to this debate because I can easily imagine ways that like rightism can be individually selected for, um, even though it appears mm-hmm. to be altruistic. Um, you don't act, have to actually model rightism as altruism. It can be actually just selfish, selfishness um, in different mm-hmm. domains because it's selfish for men to be anti-feminist. It's selfish for men, for white men to be pro-white. And it's it's selfish for straight men to be disgusted by homosexuality because it's uh, it, it's an unfit practice. It's unfit to do. You get diseases, stuff like that. So mm-hmm. you don't actually need group selection there. Um And so basically the moral systems are falling apart along with other things, along with other things. And so there's evidence that mutational load is increasing because you have decreasing purifying selection in society You have lowering Mm -hmm. infant mortality. So you would obviously Darwin noticed straight away, right? This is, this, this isn't a new theory. This is what Darwin um, spoke. And along with leftism is not the only deleterious phenotype increasing in the population. Autism rates are going up. Multiple sclerosis rates are going up. Uh, Youth cancer deaths are going up. So young people are getting cancer more. This is cancer is um, a complicated aspect because there's a ton of environmental change on cancer because of all the cancer research. So you can't just look at the total number of cancer cases or or number of old people dying of cancer or whatever, or cancer survival because of all the therapies and stuff. Uh, you know, it's the huge research mm-hmm. industry. And so that changes over time. But if you look at uh, people dying, uh, like young people dying of untreatable, spontaneous mutational load linked cancers like a sarcoma, over time, it's going up. So basically, like a sarcoma, it's a cancer of the muscle tissue. It's always caused by a de novo mutation, usually. And there's like no good treatments mm-hmm. for it. Um and they're happening and they usually are unlinked to age. They happen sort of young adulthood or in the teen years for the most part. And so the rate of that is going up. Uh, the rate of Crohn's disease is going up. And there's a bunch of research on how Crohn's disease only happens 
under like industrialized conditions. Crohn's disease was unheard of before the 19th century, not mm-hmm. because of bad medicine, but because it literally started occurring or actually fun fact, it was unheard of except in urban Jews <laughs> who were like, uh, already living under low purifying selection conditions because they were very rich That's fascinating. And, and inbreeding and high mutational load. So then Crohn's disease spreads to the Gentile population uh, under industrialization and is still increasing. All right. It's still, it's still on an increasing trend. So it's becoming more common. Left-handedness may be associated with mutational load. Um, and that's also increasing for some reason, and it doesn't seem to be linked to the cultural practice of making kids right with their right hand, right? That was obviously a function of like almost everyone being right-handed. Back in the 19th century, mm-hmm. um, genetically speaking, like 96% of people were right-handed. Now, uh, 20% of people are ambidextrous or left-handed. So basically only 80% of people are pure right-handers in the Zoomer generation. Fun fact, I'm one of the only people actually that has data on millennial on white American millennial and Zoomer left-handedness because there's no data in the literature. I had to get it from the ABCD uh, study and it is still increasing. There, there's a bad chart floating around that tries to claim it plateaued at 12% around the 1960s. Mm-hmm. That's not true. It's still increasing. Um, so it's like 20% now in the Zoomer generation. Um, so that seems... That's probably caused by mutational load because left-handedness is associated with stuff like schizophrenia and a bunch of other mental illnesses and other other traits like asthma, stuff like that. Schizophrenia is going up. Um, and several of these things, we have what's called paternal age effects detected. So paternal age, basically um, in gametes, men accumulate de novo mutations in their gametes as they age. They accumulate about two per year. Uh Female gametes do not replicate, really. So they don't really accumulate. They start with like 20 de novo mutations, and they mostly just stay there uh, until they run out of eggs. So older mothers do not pass on de novo mutations. They might have worse womb environments or something, but they don't increase mutational load. Older fathers do. Um, So when you have a trait that is basically under what's called mutational pressure, which means it's changing in a certain way due to the accumulation of de novo mutations, you expect to find a small paternal age effect. It's not older. It's not fathers getting older that is causing the trait. It's mutational load. But for mutational load to um, be a competing hypothesis in the change of a trait, you have to find a small paternal age age effect. So you're expecting a small correlation essentially between the trait and paternal age. So people who have older fathers should have slightly more deleterious traits on whatever dimension you're interested in. This is true for schizophrenia, ADHD, um, and it's true for leftism. So I have some studies that are coming out where I'm the first person who did this. Michael Woodley and his his co-authors found that there was a paternal age effect on, relig- on religiosity, but I used my new hmm. general leftism scale on prolific and asked people for their father's age and I found that there is indeed a paternal age effect on leftism. So leftists have older fathers. Wow. And wow. And um, this is not explained by those fathers being more liberal. So we know that the heritability of liberalism is extremely high. So if older fathers, if for some reason liberalism makes people reproduce older, it could just be passed on through normal means, not de novo mutations, if the fathers are more woke or more leftist. 
of older kids. So I sampled a bunch of fathers off of Prolific and asked uh, how many kids did they have at what age? And then I pooled all the fa- all the older fathers and basically computed the mean leftism of older fathers, like fathers who had kids at older ages weighted by the number of kids and found that it, it was the same mean essentially as the younger fathers. So the older and younger fathers are the same ages. So the, the, the offspring generated by the older fathers should inherit the same wokeness genes. And I also asked about their wife's level of leftism. So it's true for mothers and fathers. So they should inherit the same leftism genes from their parents as the kids generated by uh, younger parents. Yet the uh, generation generated by the older parents display uh, increased leftism. So what that tells me, given hereditarianism and the heritability of uh, political views being very high, is that there is mutational pressure on leftism. So when you look, so basically what mutational pressure means is it means the shift in the trait per generation due to the accumulation of mutational load, as opposed to other evolutionary pressures like selection. So what's the selective pressure on, so what, what, what I was talking about when I was saying mimetics is fake is that basically you whittle it down and you know it has to be genetics. The increase in wokeism has to be genetics, but you still don't know if it's due to selection or mutational pressure or what. So the fact is that actually um, the selective pressure is in the opposite direction. So I have a small post on this on Twitter and it's going to go in my book. But if you look at the data and you compute the selective pressure on uh, leftism, what you find is that the parental generation tends to be, let me see, negative 10 standard deviation or negative 0.1 standard deviations on leftism. So in other words, they're 0.1 standard deviations more conservative. So when you run this through the breeder's mm-hmm. equation, that spits out a selective pressure of like 0.0, negative 0.07 standard deviations on leftism or 0.07 standard de- deviations in the conservative direction. So people should be getting more conservative by selective pressures, which is, again, um, that's like that means by definition, uh, leftism is fitness reducing and deleterious <laughs> because they don't even reproduce as mm-hmm. much as conservatives. Uh, yet. Let me see. Um, So the shift is actually 0.15 standard deviations approximately per generation towards leftism. So what this means is that, but you know that the shift should be genetic, right? But yet it can't be explained by selective pressures, but you have a paternal age effect. So you just do the math and what you get is there's a 0.25 standard deviation mutational pressure on leftism. Hmm. And some people have said that this is a very high level of mutational pressure. Well, we have a very high level or we have a very low level of purifying selection. We have the lowest infant mortality ever in history. So this um, can be expected. And overall, like I've, I read a book on mutational pressure where some guy argued that the mutational pressure on diseases tends to be very low and this is maybe an implausible amount of mutational pressure. Um, yeah, I'm not really convinced by that. It doesn't, it seems like people are just like saying 
ad hoc that mutational pressure has to be much lower than that. It doesn't like there's no there's no like data driven reason why mutational pressure can't be this high. Seems to be what is best fitting uh, all the data. And I so I looked at IQ for a sanity check, and it's unclear actually how IQ is changing. But if you look at Michael Woodley's studies on reaction times, it would seem that general intelligence is actually decreasing by negative 0.32 standard deviations per generation. Um, so what's the selective pressure on IQ? Well, it actually turns out that the selective pressure on IQ is only like negative 0.02 standard deviations. Uh, and I posted about this on my Twitter. It's like in between negative 0.02 and negative 0.05 standard deviations, maybe. So that can explain all the IQ decrease. So what do you add on to that? If you just add on a negative like 0.25 standard deviation mutational pressure on IQ, which is approximately the same level of mutational pressure on leftism, you can explain the IQ decline. And again, IQ is another very heritable trait, like height levels of heritability. Um, so like the decline should be genetic. In fact, it's, it's hard to establish what the decline is because like height, um, there's actually been like the Flynn effect, which seems to affect how people perform on the test sort of uniformly because they're more exposed to testing and stuff like that throughout their lives. Mm -hmm. But basically the, the mutational, there's other traits that have mutational pressures of that magnitude, like IQ, that are probably genetically similar like extremely quantitative. So I, I need to create a model, but I'm thinking that traits that are uh, more polygenic, meaning they're contributed, there's lots of small effects of uh, thousands and thousands of genes that compose the trait. These should be more susceptible to mutational pressure because like each de novo mutation has a, high, a much higher chance of hitting that trait and uh, destroying one of its genes and therefore making somebody less fit on that quantitative trait than it has mm -hmm. in like uh, causing cystic fibrosis, which happens from one specific mutation on one gene <laughs> or something. And so therefore uh, the, the mutational pressure on cystic fibrosis is like uh, 0.01 standard deviations or something. Right. So it's like, we would expect much higher mutational pressures on something like IQ than on a Mendelian trait, like Huntington's or cystic fibrosis or whatever. So, yeah. So I have, Ultimately, I would like this to be confirmed with molecular studies, but that's way beyond my means for like the next, for the foreseeable future. So that's something that I want to do in my lifetime that maybe I could inspire like other researchers to look at this with my book. But I do have two studies planned further uh, for the mutational load hypothesis. One is looking at the correlation. So I, I predict that as purifying pressure decreases, this decreases sort of in turn with industrialization and the increase in wealth in a society that the mutational mutational pressure increases. Um, and this causes the sort of mutational pressure driven dysgenics, uh, which causes this leftism and IQ decrease in large part and leads to the general symptoms of empire decline, feminism, mass immigration, um, homosexuality increasing. And so I expect to see a correlation between time since industrialization and the general, the average general leftism of a country. So like, if you look at the world, you kind of see this, it would seem that Europe is less generally leftist than America. Um, people 
have sometimes argued otherwise because they define leftism as like socialistic economic practices. But that's not how I define leftism. That's not on general leftism. That's a totally different thing, basically. And it doesn't seem to really be under mutational pressure, per se. So leftism, under my definition, is feminism, homosexuality, and anti-racism. And if you look at Europe, like there are a few generations behind. They're just less on all those things. It's not based, but it's less. And it's really less in regions that had industrial, like crappier conditions more recently, like Eastern Europe. So that's the most base part of Europe, and they have the least time since industrialization. And then as the time since industrialization increases over in the West, it gets more and more paused. And then in America, it's maybe the worst. And America has probably been the richest for the longest. So I'd expect to see a correlation um, between those things. So I want to do that. That should be a relatively easy study. I just have to figure out how to act. Well, I have to collect data on the general leftism of those countries. In, in prolific, and then I have to figure out how to calculate the time since industrialization. The other harder study I wanted to do is there are papers on um, there are papers on f detecting leftism in somebody's face with a face recognition system. So I want to pull mm -hmm. a database of historical portraits, like from high school yearbooks or something, right? Just like a random set of faces. Um, that are sort of homogeneously dressed, whatever I want to control for um, decision driven stuff like blue hair and nose rings. I don't want that in my I don't want the the detector to pick up on that stuff. I just want bare faces. So I'm looking at like bone structure and stuff like that. Right. So something maybe from a high school yearbook, maybe filter out all the goths and people with dyed hair and stuff like that. Hopefully for like high schoolers, there's less of that because their parents tell them not to do that. Uh, when they're 17 or whatever. And then, so get like a bunch of high school yearbooks or some other uh, data source. I could use mugshots maybe. It might not be the most representative population, but if I just say white male mugshots, um, mm -hmm. that could work. Like are criminals becoming more leftism? Like that, it should, it should be relatively, like if I could find using a face detector, criminals, mug, criminal mugshots from the sixties are way less, are like, 0.5 SD less leftist per the detector than white <laughs> criminal mug shots or yearbook yearbook <laughs> shots from the 2010s, then that confirms that there's something in leftism that's affecting face structure, which means it's genetic and it's changing over time. And so that basically, narr again, narrows it down to genetics, <laughs> if I can get a positive result on a study like that without me having to do a GWAS study. So this is this is a study that is accessible to me that I could do that I think would be very informative. Does mutational load differ by race and sex? It should not differ by sex. Uh, like I said, I think it does differ by race. It should because uh, the races will have different amounts of purifying selection depending on where they live and what their economic conditions are. But I don't have a lot of research on that. All my research is restricted to white people, usually white men. Um, and because I don't want to deal with confounders like race and even sex. And I think it's a decent assumption to assume that, um, the politics is basically driven. The politics in America and the West is basically driven by white men. Um, and sort of what they allow white women to do and what they allow foreign immigrants to do, because even now America is still slightly majority white. So when you're explaining the history of the last, uh, 60 to 100 years 
and Europe is still like super majority white. So it, it's all white men. It's something happening in white men, not black people or, or Mexicans or whatever. So I, I just find it less important to research them. But in, in general, that study on um, in time since industrialization, that would say different populations at least should have different levels of mutational load currently. That's the hypothesis. So I want to try to, and that should lead to different levels of average leftism. But for women, no, women should have the same amount of mutational load as men within a population by definition, just because uh, just the way, the way genetics works, like um, unless for some reason um, men or whatever face slightly more purifying selection I, I don't know why that would be, then it would produce a difference, but just assuming men and women face the same amount of purifying selection, you would have the same amount of, mm-hmm. of you know, mutations between the sexes. But women are shifted on general leftism for some reason. Um, they're shifted a little bit, but the, the, chain, the change over time is still the same as, as man's. But it's just like women being shifted on IQ and height. That just happens with traits like this. So mm-hmm. women have like a five point lower IQ mean and a uh, one, 1.3 SD lower height mean. So, but you just, you just sort of correct for that when you look between men and women. Is it theoretically possible to not have mutations to be a Nietzschean ubermensch? Uh, probably not. I mean, like I said, the, the definition of de novo mutation is relative. So I think it, I guess it is theoretically possible to just happen to have gained no mutations from your parents. So all your genes are identical by descent from your parents, but in general, like on average, like everyone carries like a few dozen de novo mutations and it just, it depends on where those hit. Right. If those hit in the wrong place, you don't come out of the womb alive. If they hit uh, in one place, you might become left-handed or your risk of being left-handed is increased. If they hit in another place, you might become politically leftist. You might lose IQ points, whatever. Do you think that the crumbling genome, to steal um, the Kondrashov book title, do you think that this can be classified as an existential threat yeah it's an it's an existential threat to our civilization because the whole idea is that this is this is the symptom of civilization decline like this is the process and essentially genetic disease like mass genetic disease that destroys civilization so you can expect uh western civilization to fall like roman civilization at some point uh, if this continues and the last question here is do you think once you put on these uh, HPD goggles, specifically the kind of the, the crumbling genome perspective, uh, you understand mutational load. Do you think this has any um, normative implications here, like theological, spiritual, however you want to classify it? Um, you know, basically, what, what, what are you meant to do? More, as, uh, if you understand this, you're already probably uh, you know, a member of the intellectual elite. Um, what do you think your moral obligation is? Um, I would just say the moral obligation is to stop it. I think everyone has a moral obligation to improve the genome of the next generation. Uh, otherwise, you're sort of just falling into a death trap. You don't care about your the fitness of yourself or your offspring. 
and that's just very selfish and anti-life. So by definition, uh, if you increase fitness, you will exist more, your offspring will exist more. And so this is really, right, if, if, if you don't do that, you will cease to live on the earth. And so uh, the morale, the instincts of people should be, you know, tuned to fitness in essence. So, yeah, I, I don't really know about any sort of transcendental view um, I don't know what the metaphysical status of that stuff is, but I would be very wary of some sort of metaphysical argument that you can't try to stop mutational load because of some sort of scripture from, you know, many thousands of years ago that doesn't mention it at all, that vaguely says something like turn the other cheek or whatever. Um, that would just obviously mm -hmm. be a very genetically and politically motivated argument. It's very possible to be a Christian or whatever and, and to be against mutational load and to be for like ethical, ethical, uh, genetic improvement. Like plenty of people were 100 years ago before the <laughs> mutational load got too extreme for people to really be into, uh, genetic altruism and stuff like that and improving the genes of the next generation anymore. So, so what about a uh, metaphysical or philosophical argument going the other way that actually, uh, using the technology of tomorrow embryo selection ivg when it comes online uh we have this almost like platonic imperative to move toward you know the ultimate form of the good and that is kind of like we're climbing this invisible ladder um you know one step closer to god you know you want you can use that poetically if you want or literally um and that's kind of why i asked about the you know the the theoretical uh, plausibility of uh, reducing mutations um, to to zero uh, do you think it's it's wise to make that type of argument that we we want to climb this ladder to you know uh, post-humanity as Bostrom calls it uh, the average IQ being you know 180 200 whatever yeah I would say that that's only the beginning I mean who wouldn't want their kids to be like that it's mm -hmm. just sort of it's like death worship to want your kids to be lower IQ and more sickly and more diseased in you as opposed to wanting your offspring to be 190 IQ Ubermesh that are exploring the stars or whatever and are very uh, autonomous and stuff like that and don't have to be you know, go through the constant humiliations of modern society and, and stuff like that you know um, where can people find you uh, go to my substack josephbronski.com um, go to twitter.com or x.com slash bronski joseph that's my twitter and there's also a YouTube link in my Twitter bio. I kind of quit doing YouTube for the most part. There may be some content, but I just do it at my leisure because it wasn't really uh, paying for itself. Like I got throttled on YouTube or something and started to grow way quicker on Twitter and Substack. And it's much easier to write. So Google might be censoring me on YouTube or maybe my content isn't a good fit for YouTube, but it just it stopped making sense because it's very costly to make videos. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't growing at all. I went from like 50, 50 new subs per video to like five. So I think I got shadow banned on there because Google mm -hmm. is horribly censorious. Whereas now X is owned by Elon, which is based and they stopped censoring us and uh, Substack doesn't censor. So I can grow freely on there. Wonderful. So we'll put all of those links in the uh, show notes and thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me.